In Shaker Heights, a suburb of Cleveland, where everything from the color of their homes to the futures of their children are approved by the always watching community, Eleanor Richardson resides in a big house with her successful family, living life by the rules. Everything is going to plan until a tenant moves into her rental property and makes Eleanor question everything she thought she knew. The tenant, Mia Warren. The book, Little Fires Everywhere. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's Let's get get lit! doing pretty well yeah i'm doing well i (laughs) had to check in with yourself you gotta do do. that sometimes i do i know yeah i feel i feel weird i don't know why um i don't know i wasn't feeling well yesterday and i think i'm just um getting over the residuals of that it probably wasn't corona but who knows because every day corona means something different you sometimes it means you can't smell Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I've noticed that. Can you can you take some vitamins <laughs> or something? I don't believe in them. I don't think they help. <laughs> obviously, uh, obviously, I've been doing fine without all of that mumbo jumbo. That's just marketing. So I know what it is. That's because you eat great. Is that what it is? <laughs> is that why you don't believe in them? All my cheeseburgers got lettuce on them. So I don't know what you try to imply. But yeah, yeah, I was just I checking that. Maybe you get your stuff from other sources and maybe that's why you don't take the vitamins. What do you mean? Like take out? Oh, what do you mean? Your vitamins and nutrients that (laughs) keep your immune system built up. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And also don't use quarantine as an excuse to just like, I mean, I haven't been laying around the house. I have been productive, but I have been inside. (laughs) <laughs> I can go outside more. It was really nice yesterday. Chicago's been weird because we had like a blizzard two days last week. And then it was beautiful on Saturday and beautiful um, a few days ago. I don't know what's going on. So I need to take advantage of the beautiful days. So. I have not left the house in a week. <laughs> I did, however, take the garbage out yesterday. But that was the first time I left the house. So That counts. <laughs> I don't feel bad about that at all. Have you been watching any of the uh, producer uh, back-to-backs that they've been doing on IG? Did you see Babyface and Teddy Riley? <laughs> I saw Babyface and Teddy Riley on Monday. Now, we going to keep it cute. We going to keep Monday. it cute. Teddy Riley looks good, don't he? Yeah, sure, sure. He is a legend. They are legends. They're both legends. Yes. Indisputable. So right. who do you think won? <laughs> Baby face. Did you know Baby Face made songs with Jesus? Um, Teddy Riley would sometimes be like, Oh, you gonna love this one, this one, this a remix idea. And ba- Baby Face would go, Oh, I didn't know we were allowed to do remixes. I've never done any. Never <laughs> had to. Right. It's like not like I was gonna little. come back with a remix or nothing, because that's just, you know, that's not what I do. <laughs> I don't need to. <laughs> but that's cute for you. That's cute for you. And your remix is all rump shaker, you say? Oh, that's adorable. Look at you. Shake your rump. <laughs> also, here's Michael Jackson. 
So um, it was hilarious. I felt, like, it was I felt hilarious. like I was a little too emotional. Did you cry during any of it? <laughs> no, ma'am, I did not. Okay, then I'm going to keep that last part to myself. <laughs> Moving on. But it's something about R&B. But it, it was like, great. It was great. Man, it puts you exactly where you were when you first heard it or last remember hearing that yep. song. And those songs, how were they so good? They were. How were how how many instruments can you fit in one five minute um ditty? It was Genius. great. It was great. I yeah, loved it, was, that. it was really cool. It was a great experience. And I'm glad they got their technology together. You know, did they? They are uncles. <laughs> they granddaddies. <laughs> so, did they? Yeah, they did their best. <laughs> yeah, it, it was still great. It was, I the, it was very it. entertaining. I mean, mm. the quips that or the introductions that um, Babyface had, they were just like everything. <laughs> it was like small digs every time. <laughs> but was it on purpose? I don't even know. Is that how you trash talk? Because um, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> that was mean baby face I think he did his <laughs> stuff on purpose I really do I do his name might be baby face but he a whole grown man Hello. and he can break it if ne- if necessary if so. necessary anyway yeah that was cool alright well readers as you know we choose a theme each week based on the book to discuss based on the book that we read um So each week we choose a theme to discuss based on the book we've read. And this week, the theme is mother-daughter relationships. Alexis, you have some experience with this. You're both both ends of that. And I have a daughter. Yeah, yeah. I got a little experience with it. I'm a um, mother to a cat and a daughter to a grown woman. (laughs) And um, (laughs) mother-daughter relationships are often portrayed as... Uh, spicy, <laughs> uh, not so smooth. You know, there's a saying that mothers want boys and fathers want their little girls. And, right. You know, people perpetuate that, whether it's based on truth or not. What do you think? Are, are mother daughter relationships often a little spicy? And if so, why? Yeah, they are. It just mm-hmm. depends on the relationship that you had with your mother growing up. Um, yeah. So they are, they can be, and I yeah. I see you can have it at both ends of the spectrum. They can be really good and they can be really bad. I mean, uh, have you and your daughter ever had a spicy relationship? Yeah, the teenage years really? are hard. Um, I don't know. You might have had a, 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 a different day, a very, <laughs> <laughs> where she might have talked with a little pepper. But um, I can't. I just don't the see y'all. Is, is not a good <laughs> child. <laughs> Let me just no, say she's that. She's a great one. And you guys are like best friends. It reminds me of that episode. I don't know if you ever watched <laughs> Living Single. <laughs> I did. Well, okay. Remember when Khadijah and uh, Regine mom came to visit? Oh, and no. Khadijah and her mama was like all best friends and buying each other's gifts. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Regina and her mom could only bond over the hate they both had for Regina or for uh, Khadijah and her mom's relationship. So it's different for everybody. So do you think that's that? What is that based on? Why are mother daughter relationships often so difficult? I personally think mothers want sons. I have seen that in my life. I think I don't know what it is. Someone's been reading Thornbirds. Stop that. (laughs) 
see, listen, and I tell this to my mom all the time. She treats her sons better than she treats me. I ain't talking mm-hmm. about none of her other children. I'm talking about me. They on their own. <laughs> yes. But you, Alexis. Yes. yes, me. So I have three older brothers, as you know, and mm-hmm. I am the first girl after three boys. Now, you would think I would be in a privileged spot. Not, <laughs> or does it... Or I think I should be in a privileged spot. I am, <laughs> in fact, too. I am. I am. I am the first girl <laughs> and the oldest of three younger sisters. So I should be loved more than anybody else. <laughs> well, I think as an only child who knows everything about um, fa- big families, I think older daughters in families your size just end up being second moms. <laughs> So it becomes a two mom household. I don't know any big family with um, a range of daughters. Like you have four girls in your family and you're the oldest of four girls. So you're like Uh second mom. Mm -hmm. So you co-mommed with your mom. I don't want that role. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want it. And I remember not wanting it. I remember not wanting it. Yeah. I will say um, my relationship with my father was a lot more spicy than the one with my mom. And I've always I felt like had a good relationship with my parents, but I've always been very, very, very close to my mom. Fortunately for me, she had nobody else to be close to (laughs) besides my dad. So, you know, we had to be friends or it wasn't going to be nobody talking to nobody. (laughs) So in a relationship where it is difficult. Um, and I don't want to make this about race. However, and I know this is true in a lot of cultures. Some parents feel can feel like black parents be like, <laughs> "I'm the mama, and you got to listen to what I say." And yeah. sometimes you might not even be disagreeing with them. You just want to express your opinion. Right. And in some families, you are not allowed. You are not allowed an opinion. That's not allowed. That's seen as challenging their authority. Right. And that won't be tolerated. Yeah. So, I can't say my mom was like that. She wasn't? I don't think so. I, I feel like she was very open because. Yeah, I more think, diplomatic. Yeah. On her end, her mom didn't talk to her, she felt like, and didn't um have, you know, just share stuff about herself. So I feel like she was more open with us. So everyone's trying to correct the wrongs that they faced in their childhood with their children. Do better every that's generation. That's what we do. That's what we, as parents, I think that's what we have an obligation that's to fair. do. And yeah. I tell that to my daughter all the time. I'm always trying to um, make you better than I am. Mm-hmm. That's what I aspire to do. Give you more information than I have so you can make different and better decisions. So in a relationship, though, where there isn't communication, maybe the parent feels like they reign sovereign in their home and, you know, they're not accepting any type of no requests. Whose responsibility is it to improve the relationship in that case? Is it the mother's or the daughter's? I think it always. Well, so you have a a parent who's not sharing information, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to put that responsibility on a child. So you're talking about when you reach adult life and adult life, then when you get to adult life, I see it this way. At some point, you have to take responsibility for your life. And so Mm -hmm. if you aspire to improve a relationship with your parent or your mom, in this case, 
then I think um, you have to put those steps forward to make that improvement because you know that this person, your parent, your mom, it's been the way she's been and you can't change that. You can only change yourself, not other people. Absolutely. So as a child, the the bulk of the responsibility rests on the parent. Absolutely. Now, children do have some responsibility. Of course, it is easier to listen to someone who um, communicates without anger, but it is more difficult in our youth or with immature personalities to do that, especially when we're frustrated. But it is our responsibility, right, to communicate without anger, whether we're children or parents. Sure. We can put that on our children. But they have to, Some, children have to be taught those things. Yeah. Children have to oh. be taught everything that they know. Mm-hmm. They don't know just because they know. They have to mm-hmm. be taught those things. And that mm, is either through point. behavior or um, through words. And mostly through behavior. If you right. say one thing, but you do something else, your child's going to learn your behavior and not what you say. One publication says some women have been raised in a household where their parents did not have a warm relationship with their children. And so it's harder for them to stop that cycle. However, you do not have to repeat your parents' mistakes. It may be difficult to change your way of thinking, feeling and acting, but it can be done. And those changes will benefit both you and your family. So. Um, I want to bring into this also mother-in-law relationships, uh, which I do have some experience with. I can say that um, when I was dating my husband, I spent a lot of time at their house, (laughs) at my in-law's house. Um, And uh, I think that experience was good because it taught me that I was marrying into a family who shared the values that I was raised, the um, values that they shared the same values as I did. And they were kind, kind people who even when my husband wasn't around, my boyfriend at the time, I would spend time with his parents and that taught me how they would um, treat me or how I assumed they would treat me once we were married. And that was important to me. But in a lot of um, families, that mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship is terrible. A lot of moms see it as a competitive relationship where they may even feel jealous of their daughter-in-laws or vice versa. And where they feel like um, someone compared it as like a a kitchen, a dish made by two chief chefs. No one's going to like that dish at the end because they didn't get what they wanted out of it. And they each have strong opinions, but that final dish suffers because they can't come to an agreement, especially when children are involved, um, do frictions sometimes arise. So how do we get over this? What is necessary, Um, whether it be with our mothers or with our mother-in-laws? What do you think is the one of the key ingredients to a peaceful relationship? Communication. Communication. Um, and you have to be able to listen without mm. um listen without trying to respond or think about what next to say. You have to be able to listen openly. Receive oh, without the being defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because someone has a different viewpoint than you does not mean that they are challenging who you are or their respect for you or that they don't love you. <clears throat> So a wise person will listen. That's great. But how can we communicate with people who don't want to make an effort? Patiently. Mm -hmm. You have to communicate patiently. Um, And you have you have to uh, 
do it just a little bit at a time and take small opportunities to communicate or try to figure out how best to communicate with that person. Because you mm-hmm. sometimes you communicate with people differently. You're not yeah, gonna, for sure. You're not going to communicate the same way um, every time. So you have to find out the best way to communicate with that person. And um, that'll allow you to get in there a little bit at a time. I had to do that with my grandmother. She was getting on my nerves. So. <laughs> and you loved her dearly. And that's another thing. Dearly. Just because you have found it difficult to communicate with someone or because your relationship is strained. It doesn't mean that you don't love that person. No. So a lot of times people feel like, um, what I'm going to do is my part. I'm going to come to you with the problems that I've had from my relationship, how these problems have made me feel. And then if you don't act in the way that I expect you to act, I'm going to cut you off. And that's healthy for me. And truthfully, maybe that is the wise course. Maybe you do have to remove toxic people, especially when they seem to be um, sabotaging your uh, happiness and success maliciously. Sometimes, And that's a painful decision to make, whether it be a mother or mother-in-law. To cut someone out of your life is like cutting off a limb from your own body, especially when it's your blood mother. But if that relationship is toxic, maybe you do have to rethink your boundaries. But in most cases, hopefully you will come to someone with humility, um, letting them know how they have hurt you or how you feel you may have hurt them and how you want their relationship to get better going forward. That type of communication often yields good uh, results. It takes repetitive action. So just because you have that conversation once doesn't mean you never have to have it again. And you may have to even be more delicate in your communication as your relationship heals. Like um, if you break your arm, you wear a cast and you're more careful with that arm. That conversation can be like a cast, um, that open conversation. And then you might have to be more delicate with that relationship until it heals um, successfully. But Through all of this, uh, I think you'd agree that love is very important. We can't um, care for people just out of obligation or we will be mad at them and us and everybody else. So how do you build love with someone that can act so unloving at times? Mm. And that about getting to know them, because the more you know, what if the more you get to know them, the less you (laughs) love them? That can happen. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are just, ugh. Because they got their own issues and they bring in their issues to you. But we're talking about our parent. We're talking about a mother-daughter relationship, right? Yeah, That's but a- some mothers have issues that, they, that they're not ready to address. So they're not ready to address their relationship with you. They haven't even dealt with their own baggage. It, it, true, true, <laughs> true. What do you do? Come with the answers. You must have them. I don't know. So (laughs) I think it boils down to patience. You, you, you still, in order to get to know somebody, you have, you have to be willing. So in a relationship where you're fighting a bull, essentially, there has to be effort and work on your behalf. And so you Mm -hmm. have to be willing to put in the time and the work. If you really, really want that to make an improvement, then you have to commit to the patience 
you have to commit to the love and you have to commit to every um, effort and ability to try to make it work before you give up. What if you're doing what if you're doing most of the work in making the relationship better? Mm-hmm. That happens. But <laughs> that happens. That does happen. So I recognize that that's a thing. And as you mentioned, at some point, you have to set up your your boundaries because yeah. you're not going to give yourself until you've dug a hole in the ground you're you're just gonna give you're gonna put the effort in and then you're gonna realize and acknowledge when you've lost that battle mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. or you can't and that's win unfortunate it. because we're not um you know in the world we live in now we don't live forever so you you don't have people for an indefinite amount of time for the time that you have ha- you do have them make an effort to be peaceful with them Moms, make an effort to see your daughters as adult children, if indeed they are. If they are children now, they will eventually grow up to be grown women. (laughs) And you don't want to make an enemy of your own offspring. You don't want to do that. So treat them with love and respect. Children need respect, too. I hate to see parents who berate their children or talk bad about them in their presence or even behind their back. Don't do that. That is your team. You don't put down your team members. You're quarterback of that team. So children shouldn't put down their parents and parents shouldn't put down their children's um, children. Mothers shouldn't put down their daughter-in-laws and vice versa. We have to um, be loving and respectful of each other in public and private. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree. It reminds me of um, Sula by Toni Morrison and how Sula changed um, after she heard her mother talking about her. Yeah. Her mom mm-hmm. said to her, her mom was speaking to her mom's friends and saying, you know, I love Sula, but I don't like her. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, get lax when they're with their friends. Would Don't say anything behind your child's back that you wouldn't want them to hear. OK, That's your baby. OK, then I let me just correct myself. Debrasia is not a terrible child. You know, she go to bat for you. I love her. I I like her. I wish I would say something about Alexis. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I had to sleep with one eye open. (laughs) All right. So that's it. Mother and daughters. It can work. It can work. It has worked for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's take a break. Okay. Can you give us some context on the author of Little Fires Everywhere? Okay, so our author is Celeste Ng. Celeste was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and she moved to Shaker Heights, Ohio at the age of 10. Oh, that's a real place. It's a real place. She wrote for her high school literary magazine and developed a passion for writing and race relations. I think it was some kind of high school club. Um, Celeste attended Harvard University where she studied English and she also worked in the textbook publishing industry. She earned a Master of Fine Arts in writing at the University of Michigan. Celeste won awards for writing and her fiction works have appeared in literary magazines and journals. She's taught writing at the University of Michigan and at Grub Street, which is like a creative writing center in Boston. She's the recipient of the Pushcart Prize 
and she received a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, which is a federal uh, government-funded um, arts-supporting entity. Okay. Her first novel was Everything I Never Told You. That was published in 2014, and for that, she won Amazon Book of the Year. I'm sorry, Amazon gives awards? <laughs> oh, yeah, for their Kindle per- or their most popular books on their platform? Is yeah, that what it is? Yes, it sounds okay. like it. Um, Little Fires Everywhere was published in 2017, and it is set in the town Celeste grew up in, Shaker Heights, Ohio. That's a bold move. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> okay. New, she's a, the book is a New York Times bestseller, Amazon's number two best book of 2017. And it also won winner of the Ohioan Book Award and Goodreads Reader's Choice Award in 2017. It's like best book for over 25 publications. A Little Fires Everywhere was developed into a miniseries starring Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoons. And I think we have plans to discuss that miniseries later, right? Yeah, yeah. We were going to watch it together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. That is our uh, author and a little context. Thank you for that. Awesome. Celeste, how do you pronounce her last name? Ing. Celeste Ing. Mm-hmm. Love it. Can you give us a brief synopsis, no spoilers, of Little Fires Everywhere? No spoilers. Okay, promise. Um, Mrs. Richardson lives a structured life in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Oh, let me start that again. Mrs. Richardson lives a structured life in Shaker Heights, Ohio, where her rental property is leased to an itinerant artist mother and her 15-year-old daughter trying to lay down roots. So, Kari. What were your first mm-hmm. thoughts on this book? I felt like I was thrilled you picked it because why haven't I read this yet? It has been at the top of many lists. Um, I have wanted to watch the show on Hulu, but I wanted to read the book first. So I was just thrilled that you moved this up in the schedule. And we were about to. I, I had no idea what it was about. Yeah. None at all. Um, and looking at the promo images for the TV show, I definitely was lost. Mm-hmm. Um. So I went in with a blank slate, and sometimes that's the best. So. Yay! Wow, you know, ne- almost never do that. <laughs> what about you? What were your first thoughts? Okay, so I hadn't heard much about the book, but it kind of kept pu- popping up as I was searching for books to read. Then I mm-hmm. started. Um. So I had it in mind to read, but then I started see- seeing uh, TV references to it. So I decided to add it to my list. And then I had a friend that um, kept telling me, oh, you got to watch it. You got to watch the um, miniseries. So um, I just moved it up on the list so that we could watch it or excuse me, read it because I wanted to read it also before I watched the miniseries. Yeah. So I look forward to reading it. Well, awesome. Now that we have our first thoughts, it is time. Well, to get to the nitty and the gritty. Can you please give us a deep dive? Filled with spoilers. Filled with spoilers. Yeah. Of Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Celeste Ng. (laughs) Take it away, Alexis. Okay, let's get into it. All right. So, the Richardson family. On a a little after noon on a Saturday in May, the Richardson family home was Burning. I'm talking about 
through the window on fire. Through the walls. Through the walls. <laughs> Mrs. Richardson stood on the lawn in a robe with her son tripped tennis shoes on as she watched. And the Richardson teenagers, Lexi, Tripp, and Moody sat outside watching and discussed the status of the mental status of the youngest Richardson child, Izzy. Izzy was missing. The firemen said that there were little fires everywhere. Multiple points of origin, possible use of an accelerant. This was not an accident. And from here, the story is told in flashbacks. So let's meet Mia and Pearl Warren. The previous June, Mrs. Richardson leased her upstairs rental property out to Mia, a 36-year-old artist and single mother to Pearl, a polite and brilliant 15-year-old. While Mia and Pearl unpacked, Mrs. Richardson's son, Moody, biked over to the Warren home and introduced himself to the new neighbors. He helped them move things into the house and watched as Pearl piece together her bed. Pearl told Moody this was the first time she had a room to herself. They moved around a lot because Mia focused on her art. And although she took photos, Mia did not consider herself a photographer. At one time, um, while Mia was talking to Mrs. Richardson, she told um, Mrs. Richardson that, Mia, you could take our family pictures, our family photograph. And Mia says, well, the thing about portraits is you need to show people the way they want to be seen. And I prefer to show people as I see them. So a photographer, Mia is not. Mm -hmm. Mia works several part-time jobs to make she's an artist Mm -hmm. she's an artist um she picked up a job at a local chinese restaurant called lucky place to help make ends meet so one day uh, moody asked why doesn't your mom get a real job well pearl explained mia does have a job and her job is an artist mia's real work is her art and whatever paid the bills existed only to make the art possible so the thing is, Mia is a great artist and she could sell more work if she wanted to. She's got a dealer in New York, but Mia refuses to go to New York. The dealer would ask Mia to come to New York and Mia's like, I'm never coming back there. I hate it. So it wasn't so important for Mia to be making money. It was more important for her to make art. So this kind of carefree and precarious lifestyle seems to intrigue Moody because it's um, a very sharp contrast to the life that his mother leads. His mom, Mrs. Richardson, leads a planned, perfect life. Um, and people have to live up to an image and lifestyle in her, his mother's eyes. So as he spends the next few weeks getting to know more about Pearl and her mom, of course, their friendship deepens. Um, the more he... Yeah, Pearl and Muddy. Pearl and Moody. Yep. Mm -hmm. The more he learns about Mia and Pearl, the more fascinated he becomes by them. And also the way that Mia works seems to appeal to Moody. She seems to go to a location and um, focus maybe six months on working on a project. And then once that project is complete, she sends it to her dealer in New York and she moves on to the next spot. 
And so that has been Pearl, her daughter's life for all 15 years. Always moving. Always moving. He's taking Pearl around town. He's showing her the best spots, including places that are important to him. And during this introductory phase, Moody comes to feel as though he can't really hold Pearl's attention on his own. So he decides that the best way to keep her attention is to introduce her to his family. And the narrator notes that this is a decision that he will question for the rest of his life. The Richardson family home is huge and Pearl is like instantly overwhelmed and uh, allured by the perfection in which the Richardsons appear to leave. And soon after, while Moody is captivated by their um, like nomad lifestyle. Pearl is captivated by the structure in Moody's life. Yes. Which is typical. Yeah. Everyone is so uh, seduced by what they don't have. Yeah. It's like the even though the grass is not always greener. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. soon after Pearl becomes a regular visitor to the Richardson home and she crushes on Tripp who's a junior and admires hanging out with the older sister, Lexi. And they all seem to exude this confidence and Pearl admires it. And, and Moody does too, right? Yeah. So there are four kids in the house Mm -hmm. at the top is Lexi and then Moody. Nope. And then Trip. Nope. Lexi, Trip, Moody, Izzy. And you mentioned that the home that Mia and uh, Pearl live in, Belongs to the Richardson family. Yeah. Okay. So Moody's like in love with Pearl as soon as he sees her. Yeah. And he's like, if I'm going to keep this girl in my life, I got to give her something more than just me. I'm born. Let me take her home to meet my family. Yeah. He didn't have the confidence in himself that he, he was enough for Pearl. Um, so she doesn't see Izzy much. She doesn't see Izzy much. And that's okay because um, Trip. And Lexi seemed to kind of have her engaged. She just, she really likes those two and wants to be friends with them. So one time when Pearl is hanging out with the Richardson teens, she learns of Izzy's rebellious acts and that Lexi has a boyfriend who's black. So just some tidbits of information she learns. Lexi remarks that Shaker Heights is a good place to live because they don't see race there. Pearl gradually becomes friends with Tripp and Lexi. Um, Mia notices the influence that the Richardson teens are beginning to have on Pearl. But because she feels guilty about um, being focused so much on her life for so long and recognizing since they've decided to stay here, um, she just, this is part of what teens do and she just won't comment on it. Lexi invites Pearl to a Halloween party that both she and Tripp are going to, but Moody and Izzy aren't invited to. So Pearl feels privileged because now she's hanging out with Lexi and her best friend. And Lexi's like a popular girl. She's going places. She's got this cute black boyfriend who thinks he's going to be the first black president in the United States. By the way, Clinton is president right now. Yeah. Um, So it's like the 90s. Yeah. And yeah, Pearl loves being in that world, like a American high school hierarchy. Yeah. And so she's excited to hang out with Lexi and Tripp. But at this party, 
Lexi and Trip kind of abandoned her to pursue their own interests. So she didn't get to be as close to them as she thought she would at this party. And we later learned that Lexi then has relations with her boyfriend for the first time. So Mrs. Richardson decides to make a pop-up visit at Mia's home. Now, first of all, let me just say this. She do a lot of pop-ups because she owned that house. I don't think that's appropriate. But anyway, or legal. Yeah. She, she do One it time a lot. she just walked in and was like in the kitchen with Mia. It was yeah. like, and Mia's like, what, I mean, what do you, what do you want? <laughs> so, it's just so weird. So she pops up. She offers Mia an opportunity, an opportunity to keep house for her. So what happened is they're chit chatting and Mia says, yeah, I do other things. I, Clip house, I um, do dishes and just, you know, odd jobs to kind of make the money work. And Mrs. Richardson offers her an opportunity to keep house for their family. Mia hesitates to accept this position, but then she sees this as an opportunity to be in Pearl's life again or to kind of know what's going on in Pearl's life. Pearl's not too Pearl happy. Spends her- Go ahead. She spends all her time with the Richardson kids at their house. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Mia like misses her daughter a bit. Yep. Mm-hmm. So after working for the Richardsons for a week, Mia meets Lizzie, who's suspended from school. Izzy explains why she is expended, suspended from school. And ultimately, she's frustrated that she got suspended for doing what was right. So Mia asks, um, what are you going to do about it? So Izzy thinks of a plan. She plans a prank. And Mia tells her, you know, if you just prank that one teacher, everyone will know it's you. So think bigger, essentially. (laughs) Yeah, Mia's like giving her advice on how to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this awesome record. Yeah. So this tidbit of information draws Izzy to Mia. And. She kind of begs Mia to allow her to assist in her work in any way she can because Mia's like, excuse me, Izzy is like, I mean, I like this woman. She's great. She's not judging me, essentially. Mm-hmm. So now we have Pearl going to the Richardson home every day and spending all her time there. And then Izzy is going to Pearl's house or to spend time with Mia at her home. It's just such a a contrast between the families so the children are drawn so on because izzy is are you going to get into her relationship with her mom not a lot but i am about to go into that okay so on a school trip to the museum pearl and moody see a black and white photo of a woman and a baby that looks like mia holding a baby these kids are convinced that that is mia yeah, Pearl's like, that's my mom. And I think that's me she's holding mm-hmm. in a photo at the museum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they confront me about the picture. And Mia says, you know, I can't remember every picture that I sat for. So I don't know. Izzy is intrigued. She's weird. Like when she's yeah, there, yeah, she's weird about it. And Izzy is like, man, I, I want to know more about Mia. So Izzy begins an investigation and then kind of hits a dead end. So she asked her mom, Mrs. Richardson, who is who works for a newspaper um, to investigate. Mom, can you just go and find more information? So Mrs. Richardson begins to investigate. Um, She finds out who the art dealer is. 
But when she hits the art dealer, the art dealer kind of gives her some pushback. And so she decides that this is just some wild goose chase that Izzy sent me on. And I should have known because Izzy did it. So she's mm-hmm. annoyed. Then. Because she's like everything about Izzy is useless. <laughs> so it would seem. So, so then we get yeah. a bit of insight into the relationship between Izzy and her mom. We learn that Izzy was born premature and spent months in the hospital. And while she grew into a healthy baby, the doctor warned her that there could be issues later because she was premature. So that worry, um, as a youth, it was overprotectiveness, but it became too much. It felt like she was always being picked on by her mother for every. Oh, so so when she was a baby, it was that her mother was being overprotective because she wanted to know, you know, does my baby have cerebral palsy? Are there any respiratory issues? So she gave her a lot of attention. But then as she got older, it became nitpicking yeah. everything Izzy did. Yep, everything Izzy did. So her father would be like, eh, I mean, it's okay. Just, you know, light up a little bit. But it turns out the father didn't get all the information that the doctor gave to the mom. He just gave that information to the mom. So at, not that that means the father would have held those same um, um, same level of worry, but certainly Mrs. Richardson did. And so she felt like it was her thing to just try to check for every possible issue that Izzy could have. And Izzy has perceived this as her mother not liking her. It wasn't until Izzy that the charmed role of children came to an end. For starters, Mrs. Richardson had had terrible morning sickness, bouts of dizziness and vomiting that didn't end with the first trimester, but continued on unabated, if anything, more vigorously as the weeks went on. Izzy had arrived 11 weeks early. Nothing wrong with her lungs, the doctors told the Richardsons, though they warned of a host of other problems that might arise. Jaundice, anemia, vision issues, hearing loss, mental retardation, heart defects, seizures, cerebral palsy. When Izzy finally came home two weeks after her scheduled due date, This list would be one of the few things Mrs. Richardson would recall about her time in the hospital. A list of things she would scan Izzy for over the next decade. Everything Mrs. Richardson had put out of her mind from the hospital stay, everything she thought she'd forgotten, her body remembered on a cellular level. The rush of anxiety, the fear that permeated her thoughts of Izzy, the microscopic focus on each thing Izzy did, turning it this way and that, scrutinizing it for signs of weakness or disaster. Every time Mrs. Richardson looked at Izzy, that feeling of things spiraling out of control coiled around her again, like a muscle she didn't know how to unclench. The sense all the children had, including Izzy, was that she was a particular disappointment to their mother, that for reasons unclear to them, their mother resented her. Mr. Richardson was more tolerant of Izzy. It had been Mrs. Richardson who had held her. Mrs. Richardson who had heard all the doctor's prognosis, the dire warnings about what might be in store for her. It's okay, Elena, he would say to Mrs. Richardson. She's fine. Let her be. Mrs. Richardson, however, could not let Izzy be. And the feelings coalesced in all of them. 
Izzy pushing, her mother restraining, and after a time, no one could remember how the dynamic had started, only that it had existed always. So, the McCulloughs. Around Thanksgiving, Mrs. Richardson's childhood friend, uh, Mrs. McCullough, is throwing a birthday party, and the family was scheduled to attend. Moody and Izzy say they want to invite Pearl to come, but Mrs. Richardson said this was a family event and Pearl wasn't family. So she kind of scolded Izzy, saying that you need to recognize the difference. That was weird because Moody is the one that was like, can Pearl come? Right. And Izzy's like, yeah, can Pearl come? Right. Yeah. And then the mom is like, Izzy, you stupid. This is for family. Exactly. Get a clue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she never said anything to Moody who presented the idea. Never. So, yeah, she picks on Izzy. So this party um, was a big to do. It was a pink and white theme party, catered event with mimosas and an omelet station and even a three-tiered birthday cake for a one-year-old Mirabel McCullough. The McCulloughs tried <laughs> for years to have children, but couldn't. Mrs. McCullough has several miscarriages. They tried to adopt, but would miss out on babies because um, the agency felt like the baby should go to a younger couple. Then, one morning, they received a call from a social worker telling them that a little Asian baby was left at the fire station and by that afternoon that little Asian baby was at their home. This was like their miracle baby because after years of trying and attempts at adoption they finally had a baby. So the birthday party was their first time um, giving them giving um, Maribel a big party since she arrived. And it's actually a month or two away from them actually finalizing the adoption. Izzy asks, how do you know it's her birthday if she was abandoned? Her mother responds. Mrs. Richardson says she wasn't abandoned. She was left at a fire station where somebody would find her safely. It's a very different thing. It brought her to a good home. That's what she said. Izzy continues with her question. Asks, asking Mrs. McCullough if Maribel is her real name. <laughs> and, she, and while Mrs. Richards, Mrs. McCullough actually knows the real name, she's decided that Maribel should be her name because she's starting a new and fresh life. Mrs. Richardson scolds Izzy for her rude behavior because she wants her to stop asking these questions. And while all the teens are talking about babies, like avoiding having babies and just babies in general, Lexi seems to be obsessed with baby Maribel. The next day, Mia comes over to prepare dinner at the Richardson home. And Lexi tells Mia of the miracle baby of the McCulloughs will adopt that they found at the fire station. Mia's ears kind of perk up when she hears this. And she starts to connect the story with her coworker, Bibi. Introducing Bibi. Mia worked for Bibi, worked with Bibi at the Lucky Palace. Bibi is a waitress, and Bibi found like a sympathetic listener in Mia. So she pretty much told Mia her whole life. Bibi. Mm-hmm. Bibi told Mia a year earlier she had a baby, and the experience was so overwhelming. 
The baby's father had abandoned her two weeks after she told him she was pregnant. Initially, she was living in San Francisco where she had a good job and good money. And she, um, but the boyfriend got a job in Ohio. So he encouraged Bibi to move to Ohio with them so they could have a better life. And plus it was cheaper than San Francisco. But in mm-hmm. Cleveland, no one spoke Chinese. And they told her her English wasn't good enough to work as a reception. So she couldn't find the same level of work that she had in San Francisco and no one to watch the baby. So after she had the baby, she likely had postpartum depression. The baby wouldn't nurse. Her milk dried up. She had lost the minimum wage job that she did find when she went went to the hospital to have the baby. The baby's name was Mei Ling. So she had no money, no food. No money for diapers. And she didn't know the available resources of the area in which she lived. So she left. Like welfare and things like that. So she would scrape off the diapers and like reuse them as best she could on her baby. Yeah. And so she left the baby on the doorstep of a fire station. Bibi was actually. After she had been walking for miles and became delirious. Yeah. Bibi. Yeah. She was just walking through the street holding that baby. Sorry. So Bibi was found several days later lying under a park bench, unconscious from dehydration and hunger. She was taken to a shelter where she showered, um, was fed and prescribed antidepressants and released three weeks, weeks later. Now, I didn't know that shelters had uh, this set up where they are prescribing medication. I didn't know that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I never heard of that either. But no one could tell her what happened to the baby. She told them. She couldn't remember where she left the little girl. Yeah. She did tell them that she left at a fire station, but she didn't know where, because as you mentioned, she had been walking around the city trying to figure out where she dropped the baby off. And she was walking Mm -hmm. around, um, you know, trying to figure out what to do in her situation. And when she couldn't figure that out, she left him at, left baby Maylene at the station. So she goes to the police, asks the police about him, and they're like, you terminated your rights when you dropped the baby off. And we can't tell you which station it was. Or, I mean, you should know if you did that. So, May, not Maylene, BB began to feel like, like, is this a, is a dream? I mean, did I really have this baby? Or, I mean, she, it just felt like a dream to her. I lost my place. Yeah, and she's like, but which one is the dream? The one where I have the baby or where I don't? And she's like always in a distressed state, missing her baby like she's missing her physical heart. Yeah, exactly. So she is a year later. Yeah. So she is desperate to find her baby. And and that's since she's gotten herself back together. So, you know, she's on these antidepressants depressants now. So she's starting to feel better. So me and what this part really um, drove home for me is how much we depend on jobs because, yeah, she she probably suffered from postpartum. But what really turned her life upside down was the fact that she didn't have enough money to provide for her child. The basics. And that made the basics, the, basics. The, the fact that she didn't have money for formula or diapers or to pay anyone to watch the child while she was at work what a good job would have done for her in that moment would have completely turned her life around. Right. And in the end, um, yeah, she found work and that's what put her back on the right path. Mm -hmm. 
is finding work. Yeah, yeah it was a better job. She could take care of herself and her um, child. So Mia, now hearing this information that Lexi was sharing, she's like, I think I need to tell BB the right thing to do. So she tells BB about the McCulloughs. BB contacts the McCulloughs to talk, but they don't want to talk to her. So BB goes to the house and they call the police. BB then goes to Mia's house. Well, they call the police and the police escort her away from the premises because she's really cutting up. That's what's mm-hmm. happening. Because she's like, why won't you talk to me? You have my baby. Yeah. So, and they're not trying to talk to her. And Mrs. McCullough upstairs holding the baby like, <laughs> call the police. Exactly. Which, you know. Yeah. That, I understand. Yeah, sure. So BB then goes to Mia's house, who doesn't live that far from the. Well, she does live. Well, not that far because she walks to her house. And I guess what, like a 25 minute walk. BB then goes to Mia's house and tells her what happened. Mia suggests that BB go to the media. The story is on the evening news that day. And then everybody involved actually misses the news. The next day, the media is on the McCullough porch looking for a comment. And they capture a picture of her holding a screaming Asian baby. An attorney decides to take on BB's case. And they are going to go for custody of baby Maylene. Mr. Richardson, who is an attorney, um, represents the McCullough, is asked to represent the McCullough family by his firm. And at one time at the dinner table where they're talking about it, Izzy accuses her father of being a baby stiller because she is siding with Maylene and Bibi. Izzy, um, excuse me, Mrs. Richardson punishes Izzy for the remark by throwing away her favorite shoes. Yeah. Mrs. Richardson learns that Mia is the one who told B.B. about Maribel McCullough and decides to pay her back for causing her friend so much trouble. So Mrs. Richardson decides to pick up that investigation into Mia's life. And at this point, she considers Mia to be a dangerous person because she lives her life so privately and yet she's gotten involved in somebody else's business. And as Mrs. Richardson says, Mia takes a perverse pleasure in flaunting normal order. Mrs. Richardson invest, Mrs. Richardson's investigation leads her to the home of Mia's parents. So Mrs. Mrs. Richardson decides to take a trip to Pittsburgh and interview Mia's parents under the guise that she is doing a story about promising teen athletes whose career have been cut short. And there she learns that Mia and her brother were close and he died in an accident at 17 while Mia was away at college. But before her brother died, she confided in him telling him that she was pregnant with a surrogate, but she, he couldn't understand why she would give up her own baby. And so she really wasn't talking to her brother before he died. The parents, uh, Mia's parents didn't know she was pregnant until she showed up to come home for the funeral. Mia told them that she was a surrogate and they also, and they also couldn't understand why she would give up her baby. So Mia felt her parents' disappointment. They were at, so at home when she went back for the funeral, she tells them that this pregnancy is of surrogate. 
the parents are disappointed. They don't talk to her. They tell her don't come to the funeral and they don't include her in making plans for the funeral. So she essentially feels shut out. And so she leaves the house, takes her brother's car and hasn't communicated with them since. Um, when she learns during a flashback of Mia's, excuse me, we learned during a flashback to Mia's college years that she had lost her scholarship and was desperate to stay in school. She met a couple that asked her to serve as a surrogate for them because Mia looked so much like the wife. They offered her $10,000 to deliver a healthy baby. And after Mia left her parents' house, she sent the couple a letter telling them that the baby died and she stays away from New York. We also learn in this flashback that while Mia was in school, her teacher took her under her wing and that teacher took the photo of Mia and Pearl that was in the museum. She took several pictures of Mia and Pearl and told Mia to sell them when she needed money because she could get a lot. While Mrs. Richardson is visiting Mia's parents, Lexi learns she is pregnant and decides to have an abortion while her mother is away. She asks Pearl to go with her. And when she gets to the clinic, when she gets to the clinic, Lexi tells them her name is Pearl Warren because her mom knows the director of the clinic and Lexi doesn't want to be caught. And although shocked, Pearl accepts this. Also, Pearl begins an intimate relationship with Tripp and keeps that a secret from everyone. After the abortion, Pearl takes Lexi to her mom's house because she's not feeling well. Mia watches over Lexi at her home until she feels better, even to the point of staying overnight. When Izzy comes over for her time with Mia, she sees Lexi and, of course, questions while she's there, but Mia sends Izzy away. The hearing of McCullough's versus Bibi. At the hearing, they debate the complicated circumstances that led to Bibi leaving Maylene at the fire station. Though Maylene was undernourished, Bibi had been unable to produce milk. Though Maylene was covered in a diaper rash, Bibi had been unable to afford diapers and had done the best she could to keep her child clean and safe. And though the baby cried for hours, the neighbor said Bibi cried too. Bibi was unable to seek psychological help due to the language barriers and the red tape, such as the complicated welfare system. Then Bibi's attorney questions Mrs. McCullough and establishes that although they're able to provide for her financially, Although they're able to provide financially for Maribel, can they truly provide her the cultural heritage? And pointing out her... Any information about it. Yeah. What efforts have they made to uh, um, acclimate her to her Chinese heritage? Right. They point out that her failure to acknowledge even harmful um, stereotypes and the insensitivity to the challenges of raising a Chinese daughter. Um, she feels like, I think she made the comment, is, 
the my only requirement is to love her, not to be a Chinese expert. Yeah. Chinese culture expert is that. Mrs. Richardson and Lexi, um, during the case, both seem to have a change of heart. Well, one, Lexi has had an abortion, so she's going to have a change of heart. And mm-hmm. she can now um, relate to BB because it was mm-hmm. a one, this one bad decision shouldn't affect your entire life. That's how she says That's how it. she feels. Mm-hmm. The judge seems to be grappling with the decision as well. It takes over two weeks for them to make a decision. Meanwhile, Mrs. McCullough and Mrs. Richardson discuss what else they can do that might sway the judge. Mrs. McCullough suggests Bibi may have been pregnant and aborted the baby because she saw her being a little plump and then all of a sudden she was thinner. So Mrs. Richardson decides that she's going to use her connections to find out if maybe Bibi had an abortion since there's only one abortion clinic yes. in the area. So you're fighting for your baby while aborting a child that you're pregnant with. Maybe the judge will look at you differently. So she's trying to smear BB's name. Yeah. Instead, when she gets to the clinic and gets this information, she sees Pearl Warren had an abortion. So after getting this information from the abortion clinic, Miss, um, she goes home. She gets a call from her husband. Again, after more than two weeks, the judge has made a decision. Maylene can be officially adopted by the McCulloughs and BB can have no further contact. BB, of course, is devastated. Well, she she can as long as they approve. Yeah, but so the if, court judgment they, is for her none. She just there's a separation, full separation. Mm-hmm. So this is devastating to her. And so she has to be carried out of the courtroom. She goes to Mia's house and to kind of talk about the situation. And Mia tells Bibi that Mayling will always be your baby. And so Izzy walks in while Mia's talking to Bibi. And so um, they kind of stop talking. And I think she sends Izzy away, but Izzy knows who Bibi is. So she asks Mia, will Bibi survive this? And Mia tells her, I don't know how, but she will. Like after a prairie fire, it seems like the end of the world. The earth is all scorched and black and everything green is gone. But after the burning, the soil is richer and new things can grow. So Mrs. Richardson um, gets home after hearing about the abortion that Pearl had. And she wants to confront Moody because she knows Pearl and Moody have been really close, but she didn't think they were having um, an intimate relationship. So she kind of goes off on Moody. How could you do this? And Moody is like, wait, what are you talking about? And so Mm -hmm. Mrs. Richardson's like, oh, oh, you didn't know she had an abortion. And Moody's like, first off, I ain't <laughs> sleeping with her. <laughs> That's trip. You got the wrong son. You got the wrong mm-hmm. son. That's trip. And yeah, you got the wrong son. So Mrs. Richardson is like confused. She's like, trip is like this jock. If 
and Pearl isn't beautiful and dumb. Yeah. So how do you uh, how are they together? So this kind of kind of throws her. So Mrs. Richardson decides that instead of confronting Trip and Pearl about what happened, Mrs. Richardson decides to confront Mia. Mrs. Richardson tells Mia that she knew all along that Mia told Pearl about the McCulloughs and then tells Mia that she knows all about her past. Mia spits back, you just bothered because I chose a different life from you and you're frightened about missing out. Mrs. Richardson tells Mia, you know what? I had enough for you. Get out and be gone by tomorrow morning. And she left $100 on the table. I felt that was a little offensive, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Mia asked, oh, yeah. So Mia asked Mrs. Mrs. Richardson why she's doing this. She tells her to ask Pearl. Mrs. Richardson, excuse me, Mia goes to the school to pick up Pearl because they're leaving. She says, Town. we got to. Their lives. We got to go. We can't stay here no more. Pearl is like, but you promised we could stay forever. You promised we could stay forever. And so when they get to the home, Pearl tells Mia, I'm not packing up until you tell me why. I mean, she's been moving her whole life and she finally gets a place where she can be grounded. And now they have to pick up and leave. So Pearl is like, I, I, I don't want to. I can't do this again. Well, Mia tells um, Pearl kind of an outline of her past. And, but Pearl understands that the details will trick her out over time. Fold up your clothes, whatever will fit in your duffel bag. You promised, Pearl said, in the safe cocoon of their home, their real home, as she began to think of it, the tears began to flow along with a choking rush of fury. You said we were staying put. You said this was it. Mia stopped and put an arm around Pearl. I know I did, she said. I promised and I'm sorry. Something's happened. I'm not going. Pearl kicked her shoes onto the floor and stomped into the living room. Mia heard the door to her room slam. Sighing, she picked up Pearl's sneakers by the heels and went down the hallway. Pearl had flopped on her bed, math books spread in front of her, jerking a notebook from her book bag, a furious charade. It's time. I have to do my homework. We have to pack. Mia gently closed the textbook. And then we have to leave. Pearl snatched the textbook from her mother's hands and threw it across the room, where it left a black smudge on the wall. Next went her notebook, her ballpoint, her history book, a stack of note cards, until her book bag lay crumpled on the floor like a shed skin and everything that had been inside it had scattered. Mia sat quietly beside her, waiting. Pearl was no longer crying. Her tears had been replaced by a cold, blank face and a set jaw. I thought we could stay too, Mia said at last. Why? Pearl pulled her knees to her chest and wrapped her arms around them and glared at her mother. I'm not going until you tell me why. That's fair, Mia sighed. She sat down beside Pearl on the bed and smoothed the bedspread beneath them. 
It was afternoon, it was sunny. Outside a morning dove cooed, the low hum of a lawnmower rose. A passing cloud cast them into the shadow for a moment, then drifted away, as if it were simply an ordinary day. I've been thinking about how to tell you for a long time, longer than you can imagine. Pearl had gone very still now, her eyes fixed on her mother, waiting patiently, aware she was about to learn something very important. Mia thought of Joseph Ryan, sitting across the table from her that night at dinner, waiting to learn her answer. Let me tell you first, she said, taking a deep breath, about your uncle Warren. Mia and um, Pearl start to pack up because they are leaving. They got to go regardless. Whether <laughs> Pearl wants to go or not, they got to go. They being kicked out of the house. They got to leave. So <laughs> we learn. Um, during this break, that BB sees an opportunity and takes it. She's sitting outside the McCullough home and she waits until the lights go out throughout the house and she goes and she kidnaps baby Maylene from the McCulloughs and Maylene doesn't even cry. BB takes Maylene and goes to China. The police tell the McCulloughs that's going to be a, a very difficult chase. You're not likely to get her back. We won't be able to find her. That's that. Mia and Pearl drop the keys off and leave town. Mrs. Richardson returns home, exhausted from the day's events, and goes to bed. Izzy is distressed about this loss of relationship with Mia because she had really she had come to see herself as the daughter of Mia mm -hmm. so she returns to the house because she's looking for them she's like what's going on I mean something's going on and I don't know about it so she returns to the house she finds the envelope of photographs and negatives and in it is um, a picture of is it a picture or a piece of work that Mia it's had a work created. it's a collage like netted together of um is my shoe, understanding the, with photos of mm -hmm. of the shoe that um Mrs. Richardson the favorite shoe that Mrs. Richardson had thrown out of Izzy so she left her this mm -hmm. gift and the next morning Izzy kind of sets out <laughs> Izzy sets house the house on fire and runs away to find Mia and Pearl <laughs> And live with them somehow. And somehow live with not them. really them with Mia. Yeah, she's she, not thinking about Pearl. She's like, I'm gonna find Mia and I'm gonna live with her forever, and it's gonna be great. Yeah, and I'm never going back home. And if they find me, I'll just run away again until I find Mia. I have to find Mia. Yeah, she's um, she loved her relationship with her. So that brings us to the end of the story. Let's take a quick break. Mm. Sounds good. What are you, what's your verdict and what's and your final thought? Well, oh, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Um, my verdict is this: Little Fires Everywhere is a well thought out, 
character-driven novel about a people, a family, and a town that are more boring than baseball. <laughs> Woo, child, a snooze fest. <laughs> Until the last chapter, I was waiting for the one spark that would light the fires of my imagination. Sadly, that little fire never formed. <laughs> and if I never see this book again in my life, it would be too soon. <laughs> it was well written, though. Um, yeah, this book makes me angry. I feel like a visceral, visceral reaction okay. to the time that I put in it. And I felt like it really started my engine and never, it like repeatedly gave me something that I thought was going somewhere. I read on Goodreads, someone said, um, is this book about anything or did I miss the point? And there were comments below like, yeah, you missed the point. This is about motherhood. This is about finding your place in the world. I'm going to have to agree with the person, the inquirer. What's this book about? And why did I read it for? <laughs> so that's my verdict. I, I feel a strong, I feel so angry at this book. <laughs> um, oh, just thinking about it makes me ball up my fist. Oh, wow. Because I'm, I'm frustrated at all the beautiful stories that in my mind could have been but we're distilled into just watery wine. I don't know what this is. I don't know who it's for. I really disliked this book. Wow, really disliked. Out of all the books we've read, I have liked this the very least. And I am going to include Valette, which is the worst book in the history <laughs> of the world. <laughs> but it has some thoughts there and it carries them through and it tries to take you. It's just... Yeah, so this book, though, I felt like was about nothing and it wasted my time. What about you? What was your verdict? That's interesting. I had really mixed emotions about it. I'm like, am I supposed to like this book? Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> and people do. I, I think it's the way I didn't like how the stories were um told. So they're great stories, but they're just like story here, story here. Why are they great? Who? Exactly. They're little They're fires. Little fires. They're little fires. I get it. They're hey, I see what you did there. You put little fires everywhere. Throughout the book. And I didn't That's, like I get it. I don't think I like having little fires everywhere. <laughs> hey, I get I, I do if any of these fires are roaring and passionate, but little like little sparks everywhere. What's that? So, I, I did like the story of um the surrogate family. Um, her being a surrogate and then her artistry but I just felt Alexis why was this not a book about an Asian woman about her life and and about her leaving her baby in her lowest point and then fighting to get that baby back can you imagine that story that's the book I want to read I don't care about Mia I don't care about Pearl in your own I'm sorry, I'm going to let you talk. But in your own <laughs> rundown, your deep dive, you hardly touched on Pearl and we spend most of our time with her doing nothing. Watching Jerry Springer at the Richardson's home, not being interested in Mia, who is far more interesting than anyone else in Pearl's life. We, we don't even know what Pearl is thinking. We don't know what Pearl feels really about this traveling life. She just kind of goes with the flow. She, there's no 
seasoning on this meat. <laughs> now, if you gave me a story about a Chinese woman who falls in love with a man in China, comes to America, lives in California, makes a good life. This man is good to her. He finds a job in Ohio. Her, her world changes. She has a baby. He leaves her. All of a sudden, she is in a position she's never been before in her life. And on top of being helpless, she now has a child who is dependent on her. In a moment of fragility, she leaves that child at a fireman's doorstep or the doorstep of the fire department and regrets it. Years later, she is still looking for this baby until she finds the baby and must fight to get it back through the American court system. And then at the end, she loses, but steals the baby and moves to China. <laughs> I want that book. <laughs> I don't want this book. I want the other book, the better book. That is not the book. And instead, we have read Little Fires Everywhere, okay? So that's the book. And the little fires are like really little fires. And so they're like yeah, little the untold, fires. untold or unfinished stories. And I was, I didn't care for that piece of it. I, I felt like the stories could be um, filled out more. I like them. I like the little really stories. Really though? But which, which story do you think should have been filled out more? So sure, the, um, the mom... The um, BB and Mayling story, um, the story about the fight between Mrs. Richardson and uh, Mia there, yeah. how that could have been built out more. So Celeste, in an interview, stated that she didn't want to make Mia black because she didn't um, have any experience with that life. And she didn't want to come at that character as if she knew what Mia's life would be like. I think that takes in a great amount of self-awareness as an author, not to touch a culture that you're not familiar with. But I do think that Celeste wanted Mia to be black. I think I know for a fact, she said that she's very happy that Carrie Washington is going to play Mia is playing Mia in the miniseries because she can bring to that character an education that Celeste doesn't have um, about black culture. But I feel like Mia not being black, not even that I want that story, but I feel like both Mia and the Richardson family, both being white American families. I think that was something that um, Celeste originally, when she approached this character, did not plan for. And so she couldn't bite into this hardship that this little girl had. Mia is a child. She is a child. She is a woman who's technically a virgin with a child. Yes. Yes. <laughs> she is a woman who has never had sex that bore a child yeah. um and has never the only loving relationship she's ever had is the mother-daughter relationship yep. or the mother brother. She had yes. like a motherly relationship with her brother. Yep. So that's the only way that she knows how to express love is in a motherly way. Yep. And so she pours herself, I guess, into her art which I thought her pieces were explained beautifully, yeah, but were. why she made them, we, we weren't ever um, given a glimpse into her motivations, just into the results of them. Yeah. And I didn't care about Mia. I mean, this is a woman who was a surrogate to a family and that just like left when she decided not to give up the baby. That could be a story. That could have been a story. I don't know if I would want to read it, but it seems more passionate than whatever this lukewarm was. 
I was I hated this. <laughs> I hated this. You know, I don't think I've ever heard you hate a book so much that you jump into my um, my thoughts about the book. So this is like this is like deep, deep. Can I just mute my my mic and let you finish? No, no. Hold on, hold on. I'll let you finish. But this was one of the worst books I ever read. Okay, I'm muting my mic now. No, that's not necessary. It's not necessary. I, I think I said I don't think I would. I would not recommend the book. To anyone, um, it, it was just a lot to me. I think there were too many little fires and I just couldn't get on board with all the little fires. I think it needed to be um, more rounded, more well-rounded. You know why we loved this um, hyped up book of all time of or of the last 10 years where the crawdad sings is because it took us through the life and mind and motivations of one little girl. and. It touched on everyone around her, but she remained your focus and she was interesting. She was detailed. This, the characters in this book, you're not spending enough time with no. them to get all the details. Right. And what you are getting isn't, it's not, it's not going to, you're not going to fall in love with anyone in this book. No. <laughs> Maybe BB. No, so you, you, BB is the only one who seemed passionate about anything. You get all these little flashbacks into why, um, say, why Mrs. Richardson um, feels this way about her child. You get this small little patch of information about why uh, Mrs. McCullough um, is at this point with adoption, um, how she had all those miscarriages. But it's all just like that, just little bitty pieces of interest information that needs to be filled out more. That's in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and you, the author has tried to steer us so harshly against Mr. Mrs. Richardson that I'm on Mrs. Richardson's side. I'm not on <laughs> just, Mrs. Richardson's side. Just out of spite <laughs> against the author. And, but you are contrary <laughs> like that. But no, that I, I never could get on board with. I felt like she was a little racist. Mrs. Richardson was a racist. I think that's how C- Celeste wanted the character. She wanted it to be this racial tension between them but it's not there these are two white women of different classes so there's some class issues where mrs richardson feels like i'm giving you a great deal on rent so i own you a little bit and she keeps tally in her mind of all the good she does for others so that she can call back favors as she needs them mm-hmm. but that in itself does not make me hate the character i i can like a bad character sure sure <laughs> but not a bad written one a poorly written so. uh, no I, I didn't I, I didn't hate her I feel like that's a very strong word I've mentioned that to you before but um I don't like her <laughs> and I like her as a character yeah. so yeah that's it all right so that was little fires everywhere if you're still with us <laughs> uh what are we reading next week Alexis <laughs> the chantry of dunces the Conclusion? That's right, the Confederacy oh. of Dunces. <laughs> so, because you know, I've chose this book because it's supposed to be a little comedy. I'm looking forward and to I don't that. Typically, gauge in comedy, yeah. So we might enjoy um, humor. Yeah. Mm, we'll see. We will. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria. That's her, and Kari Herrera. That's me. 
Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too. Yes, we do. If you've enjoyed, we do. <laughs> if you've enjoyed what you've heard, tell a friend about Lit Society, but not about little fires everywhere. Oh, don't tell them about that. Oh, do you even want to watch the show now? <laughs> I started watching it. I think we should watch okay. it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read, read something. something. And that's the show. <laughs> <laughs>